if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we made it all the way through verse 6. This week we're going to go back and do verse 6 again. Okay? Someone was giving me a hard time saying we did three verses and he said, well you're going to go back and and then go redo like everything in verse 4, 5, and 6. Not quite, but we are going to do that to verse 6. We're not going to redo it. We're going to do more in verse 6. If you notice, as we read here in the next few moments, notice the crescendo in Paul's proclamation in verse 4, 5, and 6. Verse 6 is really the climax of the verses 1 through 6. And verses 1 through 6 kind of form what we would call the preface to the second half of the book of Ephesians. So within the preface to the second half of the book of Ephesians, verse 6 is the climax of the preface. So we're going to, and we could go back and talk about what does one Lord, one body, one spirit, and one baptism, and who knows, maybe the Spirit will hit me this week, and yeah, we'll go back and redo those ones, as, or do those further as well. For now, we're just going to do the crescendo of verse 6, um, or the, the, the crescendo of this, the climax being verse 6. So notice that as we read what this kind of all drives towards in verses 1 through 6. Let's read verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, In verse 6, he says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we study these words this morning, that we would see you as the God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, for that has profound implications and applications for every moment of our existence. Let those words sink into our hearts this morning. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to do some introduction here before we really kind of jump into verse 6. But I want to start with this. As with all sin, lacking humility, gentleness, Lacking patience and lacking the seeking of unity in the body happens when we lose sight of our marvelous and our gracious God. So these things happen, like all sin happens, when we lose sight of God. When we lose the picture that He has revealed Himself to us as. Or when we lose the description and stop worshiping Him for how He has revealed Himself to be. And this is why Paul reminds the Ephesian believers of the God that they are beholding. 
So he calls them to this humility and gentleness and patience, walking in a manner worthy of their calling. And then he says, here's why. Here's the basis. Here's the grounding for that. This unity you're talking about, that this humility and gentleness is going to lead to, this unity of the body is founded in this God who is one, who has one plan, has one design, has one, is one himself. Now this is why Paul reminds the Ephesian people of the God they're beholding, because they've, they're encouraging them, not necessarily that they've lost sight of this, but he knows the risk of them losing sight of this. He reminds them of the God that they are to glory in, the God that they are to celebrate and praise and worship. And it's because of this God that they have and we have unity and this unity will be maintained. It's abiding in this God that will in part keep us on the path of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now this calling, to review here a little bit, is to be holy and blameless. It's not going to be on the screen, but if you look back in chapter 1, he says, even as he chose, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He called us, he chose us to holiness and blamelessness. And so this calling to be holy and blameless, we are to then walk in a manner worthy of that. So verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. The manner we walk in that are worthy of is the calling to be holy and blameless. Now he goes on to define what does that look like? Well, that looks like humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love. Now, when we walk in a manner worthy of this calling to be holy and blameless, it will have then a direct impact on the unity of the church. I think we take this for granted in our kind of nice little culture and even church cultures that we live in. And this is the, this is the fact. We would be enemies apart from the grace of God. I mean, look at the world. Look at your coworkers. Like, the, the chances of them ditching their coworker, you know, one coworker ditching the other coworker for a delight in something else, say it's a promotion, or it's a, a lady friend, or it's, a, you know, who knows, the, the quickness of their willingness to just depart from that relationship or friendship speaks to what their relationship is based on. I mean, the reality is, is there really is no relationship there, only that which is convenient and most serves me for the moment. So this is enemy-like relationships. I'm, see, here's the deal. The culture, only those who are redeemed can truly have relationships with others others that are not strictly self-serving relationships. So it's, uh, my point is this, I want you to see, we would naturally be enemies. That's the only thing you can have when you have verse 1 of chapter 2, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience. That doesn't create unity, that creates hostility. Now, our world kind of brushes this all up, so we, we kind of all look a little moral, and we're kind of good people, and, 
you know, and, and certain political people want to, you know, we're going to share and take care of all the poor people and all these kind of things. It's, it's not for selflessness and for their good. It's for a campaign and for someone else's good. That's called hostility. That's not for someone else's benefit, although they might benefit from it for the time. So I want you to remember that we would be enemies. And you see this in the garden going forward. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. What happens in the garden as soon as sin enters into the world? The woman you gave me did this. Look how quickly he departed from the relationship with his wife and was willing to throw her under the bus. There's no buses at that time, just in case you're wondering. Like Willing to just depart from that. That's an enemy. Look at Cain and Abel. Brothers. Right? And what happens? Hostility. You have this in Adam and Eve. You have this in Cain and Abel. And you have this going forward. So we would be enemies if it wasn't apart from God's calling and then His work. And so this unity, this unity that we're talking about here in Ephesians, I would argue is the first piece or the first step after the cross in God's ultimate plan to unite all things in Jesus Christ. So he's saying that in chapter 1. He's going to unite everything. And after the cross, this uniting of these people in the blood of Jesus is the first piece and the primary piece of God uniting all things in Christ. And you see, when we are united, if that's the point, if that's the plan, then when we are united, what emerges from God's work here even amongst us, is Jesus Christ as the point of it all. Now, as we talk about this idea of unity, it occurred to me this past week that I think many of us probably have a very small, pathetic view and vision for unity. I think most churches have a pathetic view and desire and definition of unity. I think in many of our minds, when we think about unity, and no matter what your maybe ch- past church experience has been, when we think about unity, we think of simply not fighting. Or people just, you know, kind of getting along with each other. You know, there's nothing... No one's at each other's throats, and we kind of come together and kind of do some cute things together, and we, and we call that unity. Simply avoiding unhealthy disputes and arguments, or people just showing up together to fill some seats. But I want to call us, though, to something bigger than that. Something grander, something more beautiful than that. Something that takes a whole lot more work, but something that honors and glorifies God. Let's have a bigger vision for unity. Let's have God's vision for unity. So what is God's vision for unity? I believe God's vision for unity based upon Ephesians here is a people proclaiming the same gospel in such synchrony that Christ emerges as the point of it all. Now that takes a lot of work. Unity is people proclaiming the same gospel in such synchrony that Christ emerges, that He just comes forth as the point of it all. This, now this doesn't mean that we all live on the same compound 
dress the same way, shop at the same stores, and share wealth so it's all equal. As a matter of fact, what you're going to see in the verses to come is that diversity among the body is actually a very good thing. Diversity is a healthy thing. Matter of fact, it's an honoring thing, and it's the direction to which we're going. There will be diversity around the throne of Jesus, as there is now and will always be. Besides this idea of, of kind of doing some of the same physical things and looking the same way and saying the cute, same cute phrases, and that stuff is probably most likely superficial and exclusively physical unity and not representative of anything that is spiritually unifying in nature. What I, what I mean by that is that churches like to rally around certain, what's that with my shirt? Rusty's pointing my shirt. Identity and rhythms, yes. Outward display of an internal unity. There we go, you get co-preaching this morning. Isn't that awesome? So even us, though, we can rally around external displays of unity and there be no spiritual unity going on inside. And we have to be careful of that. But God's vision is this, that our hearts together, moment by moment, displayed in our parenting, our marriages, our relationships at school and work, our daily tasks, the work we do, our heart motivations, everything. That moment by moment that we all in unison proclaim that our great God has set us free from sin and called us to holiness and unity in His Son, Jesus. That's God's vision for unity. That His power, that when we do this, that His power is proclaimed as the only power that reigns on this earth and in this cosmos. That's the kind of unity that God demands. That's the kind of unity that God is building towards. And that's the kind of vision that we need to have for unity. Not just this, oh, we get along, we don't have arguments, or we kind of show up together and do similar things. And It's more than that. It's a unity that can only be exclaimed or be, be explained by a Christ at the center of it all. Now, in order for us to do this, we've got to believe and love and live with conviction the same things concerning God. That's why we talked about this past week or last week that unity cannot be based upon the lowest common denominator. Matter of fact, that commonality has to be an ever-increasing and thick and rich commonality. What I mean by that is that our beliefs concerning God, we can't just rally around some cool little, you know, very unique statements about God and, and then kind of call that unity. No, that should be an ever-increasing and thick and rich understanding of God. And as we learn that and believe that and live that and love that, then our hearts together will moment by moment proclaim the truths about this God. So this means we must know what God has said about Himself and remind each other of it consistently. You see, what we believe 
and hold with conviction concerning God directly impacts the manner in which we walk. You see, what we believe and hold with conviction concerning God directly impacts whether or not we will live in such a way that is unified and exalts Jesus or is singular and selfish and exalts ourselves. You see, this is what Jesus means when he says in John 15, verse 7 through 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, some people interpret this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples that you ask big and God gives you and will be done for you. And if that happens, then you will be glorified and bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's the abiding in me and my words abiding in you. It's from that God will be glorified and you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A byproduct of that is asking and it being done for you. But my point here is this is, this is what Jesus means is abiding in me. In my words, that's what Paul does here in Ephesians 4. He's saying you need to walk in this manner worthy. Now let me help you do that. Abide in these words concerning the God who created you. So practically, how do I abide in Christ and His words and so be humble, gentle, patient, etc.? For this, I want to take us to particularly verse 6 in chapter 4. Here, in verse 6, Paul gives us two particular aspects of God's oneness. Okay, God's oneness, two particular aspects aspects, characteristics, if you will, of God's oneness. These two aspects of God's character will impact the unity of this church. And that's what I want to talk about. How do these two particular aspects bring about unity in the body? How do they help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling to be holy and blameless, such that we walk in humility, gentleness, patience, such that we are unified and Christ emerges as the point. Okay? So here's my proposition. It's that we will maintain unity as we abide in the God who alone is both, big word, transcendent, above His creation, and imminent in His creation. Right? You will maintain unity as you abide in the God who alone is both transcendent above His creation and imminent in His creation. And don't worry. Now if you, did, if you did renovate us, then you should have a lot of that defined in your mind already. But if you haven't, we're going to work through this this morning. So what we believe concerning God in this verse will directly be reflected in the way we walk and so impact the unity in this body. And what I want to do today is kind of a couple things. 
I want to do a treatment. I want to help us see the God who is transcendent and the God who is imminent. Like begin at least to see that and understand that. And I want to help us then apply that and, and help us, because here's the deal. It's, it's one thing to understand that God is transcendent. But guys, you could spend the rest of your life applying his transcendency to your each and every day, your moment by moment. And so we're just going to kind of get at that part of applying it. And that's largely what we do in house gatherings is we take the scriptures and we help apply it. I want to do that a little more intently uh, this morning. So verse 6, he says this, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we're not going to spend much time here, but on that first phrase, one God and Father of all. He's God God the Father, ties everything together. He's one God, and He's one Father of all. He ties everything together. Now I want to define what I mean by that again, but we're not going to hang here for more than just a couple minutes. I would argue that this one God, who even ties the Trinity together, That at the center of the Trinity is the Father who reigns and rules as the chief among equals. Let me give you a verse. Jesus says in John 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Sounds like there's a chief in the Trinity. Now, there's other verses that talk about them being equal. What I want you to see is that Paul is crescendoing, crescendoing, is that a word? Uh, To God the Father. God the Father of the Trinity. So God the Father is the one who determines the will and the actions of the Godhead. The Trinity. He is the one who ties everything together. I think that's why Paul moves to this climax of verse 6. We also see that it is God who is the one summing everything up in Christ. So as time progresses, God is carefully and meticulously bringing all things together so that at the end of the age, as we know it, Christ emerges to the top as the point of it all. So God the Father is the one orchestrating all of that. Now these two points, this God is tying the Trinity together, God is the one summing everything up in Christ, so it will kind of be echoed as we go. But the two main thoughts that I want you guys to walk away with today, the first one is this. We can be unified because God is transcendent. We can be unified because God is transcendent. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all. Who is over all. And it's interesting, if you look at that verse, Paul at the very first says, one God. And then he says, who is over all. And then he says, Father of all. And he says, then through all and in all. But look at this first. He says, who is 
over all. Now let me define, I didn't put in a fill in the blank there, but let me define for you transcendence. God is the one, when I say transcendent or speak of God's transcendence, I'm speaking of the God is the one who is high above, existing entirely independent of, and sovereign over all creation. There's a lot in that statement. Let me repeat it again. God is the one who is high above, existing entirely independent of, and sovereign over all creation. Now we must go to the scriptures to understand what this means, all right? Here's the deal. When we think about God being high above, you can't just go to your imagination, your feelings, or your experience. Well, I've experienced God as, you know, this, or, you know, your experience could have just been really good food or bad food, and it made you think poorly when you happened to be thinking about God. What does the Scripture say about God and His transcendency? What does he say? What does it say about this? Now, for many of us, we feel like God is this warm little cuddle bug who sort of like leaves us alone until we need someone to make us feel better. But what does that have to do with God's transcendency? Or maybe, maybe we claim that he is much greater than us, that he is God, and of course, I'm like this and God's like that, yet practically, the primary times we look to him it's just when we need something or some comfort. That, that doesn't speak to us understanding that he's transcendent. That he is the one who is high above. That he is the one existing entirely independent of. That he is the one sovereign over all. As his very character, if he is transcendent, demands everything of us daily, both spiritually and practically. So let's look at the Old Testament and see, particularly here, what does the Scriptures have to say about God being transcendent? Look at Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Just the first part of 15. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Look what he's saying about God. That he inhabits eternity. Eternity. Who else inhabits eternity? God inhabits eternity. I mean, you understand what he's saying. Eternity. No beginning, no end, and that's where God inhabits. That he is high and lifted up. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 1 through the first part of 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my home and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. What God is saying, he's saying, where is the place in creation that can house God? Where is the place on this earth that can house God, that he could lay his head down to rest. I watched the movie Martian last night. It's a pretty good movie. And you see, I mean, you just 
see the vastness of space and the vastness of the cosmos. Guys, understand that all of that was created. And God is outside of that. Right? Eternity. Stars come and go. God exists outside of that. This is what we, when we talk about the transcendency of God, that he is transcendent. Like he is high above all of that. You see, the conception of God, this conception of God and his transcendence is a part of the very core aspects of the whole Bible's theology, but also particularly here, the Old Testament's theology. He exists eternally, infinitely, and independent of his creation. Exodus 15, 11 says, this is the song of Moses, says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? Like, I would ask us, like, do you walk throughout the day going, Who is like you, God? I think many of us walk throughout the day going, Who is like me? But who is like you, God? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And thank God, right? We talked about this a handful of weeks ago, that his thinking is not limited to our thinking. That his plans are not limited to our plans. But he is high above. Genesis 1.1, the very first few words of the Scriptures in the beginning. What's going on there? The, the opening line of the Bible. In the beginning. What's he doing? He is declaring from the outset his eternal existence that transcends the entire created and contingent order. All of creation. He's speaking of the beginning. The beginning of all of creation comes here. But God is before that. That he exists outside of that. The New Testament picks up on this in many places, but particularly in Acts 17, (coughs) verse 24 through 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything. I mean, think about that. The very praise on your lips that you utter towards God is a part of his creation that he gave It came from his hands. God exists without any need for the creation. That's what Paul is saying when he's talking about him being over all. He does not have any need for this creation. He exists by his own will. Right? You and I do not exist at our own will. You did not come into existence because you decided to come into existence. You came into existence at the will of someone else. The rocks came into the existence at the will of someone else. 
like Karl Barth said. He says, God is not dependent on anything that is not himself. God is not dependent on anything that is not himself. God is independent of all created reality. I hope some of your like, minds just kind of are going like, whoa, I don't know if I can handle this, right? Or as someone did a few moments ago, you know, like, I hope that's what's going on. And I hope every day as you study the scriptures that your mind does that when it comes to this transcendent God. More, a little closer to home in chapter 1 verse 11 of Ephesians, it says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Let me think about this. In him we've obtained an inheritance. From this God who is transcendent, and his son Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of this transcendent one, who does what? Works all things according to the counsel of his will. This transcendent one determines the plan, and he works all things together for that plan. So God is high above creation, and everything happens according to the counsel of his will. Now here's what I want to do. I want to take that, take that picture, and just very briefly think about how, do, how does that work? How do we think about humility? How do we think about gentleness and patience and bearing with one another and seeking unity? How do we think about these kind of things? And listen, here's, here's the, 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 the kind of, the, I guess, the danger here. Is I'm going to give you some specific examples of how the transcendency of God, or his, God's transcendence, speaks to humility. Now the issue is that you could take that one example and go, okay, transcendency, humility equals this. No, I'm just giving you an example. I'm just giving you an example that you have to flesh out in your own life. So the first one is this. Walk in a manner of humility and gentleness, eagerly maintaining unity because God is transcendent over his creation. Now let me give you some example or an example of that. Many of us lose sight of humility and gentleness because we have very small concepts when it comes to the transcendence of God. We have very small concepts of the transcendence of God. What's another way of saying that? Your God's just too daggone small for you to be humble. Like, we live in pride often because our God is just so small. That, yeah, certainly, if I compared myself to your God, I'd feel pretty good about myself too. Like, I'd, I'd have reason to boast of my own glory if I compared myself to many of the gods that are represented here in this room. Paul just said, but just listen to what Paul just said to you in Ephesus God is over all, He is over all. I want you to think about a situation where unity can be lost because of a lack of humility. Okay? Let's take an example. A time where you could, unity could be lost because of a lack of humility. Let me give you an example. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just a particular aspect of pride or lacking humility. It's easy to start comparing ourselves to someone else. It's easy to become self-righteous. I mean, this is very easy. 
Maybe a couple ways we do that. I sin less in this area than this person, and that makes me you know, kind of feel better about myself. Comparing. Maybe we compare the things that we have or that we don't have in order to bring about self-righteousness. So what happens then when, that ha- when, when, when kind of the self-righteousness kind of kicks in? And, 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 you know, don't look at me with blank faces. Like, all of us struggle with this at some point, right? Self- I'm not the only one, right? Self-righteousness. Okay. So what happens then is humility and gentleness is lost. And maybe even just for a moment. And then you say something to a brother or sister and that unity is broken. You understand that the very act of self-righteousness is simply self-promotion over someone else. It is me promoting myself in my heart and mind above that person or those people or, or God for that matter, ultimately. Now let me encourage you though. I want you to think about transcendence over us. Listen, God is so high above us. His ways are much grander than your ways. If you would abide in that truth, humility would be your friend and unity would be maintained. Why would we even have a reason to be prideful if we rightly understood God's transcendency? The fact that He is so high above us. Where does that give us room to be prideful? What, would we, what do we have to be prideful of? when He is the one transcendent over. We don't have a place for that. So if I'm getting prideful, which is leading to a lack of humility, at least one of the first things that I'm forgetting and not living and believing about God is that He is great. That He is transcendent over. You see, we can be humble if we understand your creatureliness in light of God's transcendence. We understand who we are in light of God. Second thing here, walk in a manner of patience, eagerly maintaining unity because God is transcendent over His creation. Let's think about this for a moment. How does God's transcendence impact or inform and and guide our manner of walking in patience? Here's what we're talking about. How does abiding in the fact that God is transcendent impact the way I walk so that we would be seen to be God's disciples, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. Let me ask you a question. How many times in a relationship, this could be in the church, your wife, your spouse, your husband, your kids, whatever it is, and you get impatient? Anybody struggle with that? Impatience in relationships with other people? Yeah. Now, for real, they might really need to be doing something a certain way. Okay, we're not we're not negating the fact that what you're impatient with them about is not a legitimate issue that they need to deal with. It could be sin in their life, or it could be just something they do that just drives you crazy. I mean, I don't know about you, but that happens to me sometimes. Guys, your lack of patience. I'm just gonna get straight to the point is indicative of you abiding 
in your own transcendent sovereignty above the situation and the person. Because here's what's driving your lack of patience. It's the fact that you believe you are sovereign over that situation and that you can affect change in them as if you're the one who is high above and sovereign over that person. Think about this for, for those of you who are parents. I get impatient with my kid. Why? Because I'm instructing them to live this way and I can't make them do it. What's driving that impatience? The belief that I'm transcendent over my child and I'm the one sovereign over my child. But that's where we come and we go, why? Who is it that instructs the heart? Right? Who is it that's sovereign over the internal workings of that child? It's not you. You're not transcendent over that. God is. So who's the one stepping into that role in your mind in that moment of impatience? It's you. And who do you believe is not transcendent over your child? God. Because you've replaced him with yourself. So same thing happens in the church. Same thing happens with unity in the body. Again, I'm not saying like that child might need a spanking. They need a punishment. They might need a dress for their disobedience. What I'm talking about is your attitude of impatience and not being patient and gentle. Right? These are fruits of the Spirit. What are we showing? Fruits of our flesh when we're impatient. So same thing goes in the church. That our patience should show that we trust our, our patience does show we, ch- we, have, we trust that God is transcendent over. So we should abide in Him being transcendent above the situation. Listen, listen. I want to set some of you free. Listen to this. You can rest because God is in control. Do you realize that? Like you can be patient with that person, with those people, with, with that child, with that other person in the church. Because, you know what, God is transcendent above that situation. That he is high above, he is holy and blameless, he is sovereign over it. You can rest. Like, you can just take a deep breath and rest. You can trust him. I try to tell my kids all the time, right, they're getting all worked up because someone took their toy, right? Listen, listen. You can rest. Why? Because God is transcendent above your situation, my son. Now, I mean, get it. My five-year-old's like transcendent. What are you talking about? Listen, use it and then explain it. But anyways, I haven't used the word transcendent with him yet, but I say to him, you know, God is in control of this. God is the boss. We use the word boss a lot. Maybe because for my, you know, whatever. Anyways, we use the word boss. Like God is the boss of the situation, and it happened according to his plan. So you can rest. You can rest. Now, I'm going to go spank him for taking your toy, but, but you can rest, my son, okay? Walk in a manner, next one, walk in a manner of eagerness for maintaining unity because God is transcendent over his creation. What's it like fighting for something you really believe in only to be feeling like you're going upstream? What's that like? It's hard, isn't it? The temptation to give up is huge. The current pushing against you is so hard. I remember 
First time I went wading, if you've ever been fishing where you're wearing chest waders and in a very fast river. Uh, first time I did that, uh, well, not the first time I ever did that, but uh, one time we went a few years ago, the first time I ever went with Brian Gaskin. You know Brian Gaskin? He's kind of a thick dude, okay? If you know, I think he's in the nursery right now. He's a thick dude. So that's what I did. I like, we walked out into the river and it was really fast and so I just, He's downstream, so I just slowly kind of walked around and, and made my way to the other side of Mr. Gaskin so that he would be upstream, right, fighting and breaking the current so that I could just, like, stand there and let him get worn out while I stood there and enjoy. If you don't know what that's like, I, I'm sorry I failed at painting a good picture for you. But listen, this stream that God has ordained He ultimately is the one fighting for that will. He is the one ultimately sovereign over that and transcendent over that. Listen, if you want something to happen and it's not happening, it's just simply not God's will. His is going to happen. And I think a lot of times we get frustrated because we want our will to happen and it's not happening. What are you thinking in that moment? You're thinking that your will is the one that should happen. And that you're transcendent enough to make it happen. But you're not. See, God is transcendent. And so when we desire His will, we can rest and trust that it will happen. That it will happen. So again, what can you do? You can fight this battle knowing that there is not just help, that there's not just someone else breaking the current for you, but that there is a God who will maintain and will accomplish His plan and His will. You see, the unity of the body, as we're talking about, is God's will. And He will work all things according to the counsel of His will. So, again, there are a thousand other ways that the, the fact that God is transcendent how that applies in your life each and every day. The second thing I want to talk about is this. We can be unified because God, who is first transcendent, has chosen to be imminent in His creation. We can be unified because God, who is first transcendent, has chosen to be imminent in His creation. Back to verse 6. He says, one God, and it's interesting here because he says there's one God and there's one Father of all. God, this high and transcendent one. This Father who is what? Through all and in all. What do you think of when you think of God, right? High, transcendent, above. What do you think about Father? You think of near and close. But he is through all and in all. So let me define God's imminence for you. God is freely, personally, deeply, and fully involved in the happenings of his creation. He is freely, personally, deeply, and fully involved in the happenings of his creation. Again, if we're going to define this, we can't just go to our imaginations to understand this or the way I feel or my past experiences. This could all be wrong. Well, but they're my experiences and you can't tell me that I, yeah, I can. 
The scriptures can disagree. I mean, for many of us, we feel like God is this great, big, transcendent being who really doesn't deal much with the day-to-day life. I mean, here, here's one of the ways that like, I know that many of us just think of God as this kind of disconnected, uninvolved, transcendent being is that we don't really deal with sin like we should. If we believed God was imminently involved, we would be overcoming sin more regularly. We would be pursuing it more intently, or at least the overcoming of it more intently. So let's go to, again, two Old Testament passages that describe well the transcendence of God. Isaiah 57, this is the same verse we looked at earlier, verse 15. I want to reread the first part and go on. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is what he says. I'm high above. I am transcendent over. And yet I am imminent in. I am personally involved. I am fully involved. I dwell in the high place. And I also dwell with him who is contrite and lowly spirit. Let's go back to Isaiah 66, verse 1 through 2. We'll read it, we'll repeat and then read on. Says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Where is it that he would lay down and rest? Nowhere among his creation. Yet who does he look to? The one who is humble and contrite in spirit. The one who trembles at his word. You see, the scriptures stress greatly God's free and active personal involvement in the world and human affairs in particular. Here's what I'm saying. God is free. He's not bound to be imminent in his creation. He has freely chosen to be so. And he is active in his personal involvement. Guys, from the very beginning, so in the beginning, right? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God is what? He is outside of the beginning. But then what does he say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he creates this. And then what happens as you get into Genesis 1, 2, and 3? You see God walking in the garden with His people. You see God come to Adam and Eve after they sin. You see God institute and proclaim His plan to rescue His people. So you see Him transcendent over His creation, and then you see Him imminently walking amongst His creation. Guys, the notion of covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the covenant in Christ, all of these reveal the heart of God. That by the means of various covenants, God shows His plans and desires to be imminent among His fallen creatures. The very fact of God's redemption plan 
shows God's imminence among His creation. As I want you to see, God is transcendent over, but He's also imminently involved. God has shown His great love and concern for humanity supremely in His acts of salvation. See, God's intimate relation with us is seen here. This is why it's this important. Churches that don't preach the fallenness of humanity miss the gloriousness of what's going on. That's why we talk so much about our own rebellion. Why? Because it's in light of our rebellion and rejection of God that His intimate relation and His personal self-sacrificing determination to bring our relationship to its original intention is given the most brilliance. It's when you see our rebellion held up next to God's self-sacrificing determination to bring us into relationship with Him that you see it in brilliance. Listen, if you want to help someone follow Jesus, like someone get saved or be in Christ, like they have to understand their fallenness. It's not just, hey, you're a good person, come, God will make you better. You miss the beauty of the picture. You miss the reason why God's worthy of worship. Listen, Joel Osteen can help you be a good person to come better. But God can take a wicked, rebellious enemy of God and turn him into something beautiful and glorious. Is that the picture you're painting for people? Like, is that the picture you're painting for people? I was, I was encouraged, I, I don't know, she might get on me for saying this, but um, my grandma was talking to me the other day about a, uh, I didn't ask for permission, some preachers like pay a dollar if you give an example, and you didn't ask for permission, but um, anyways, uh, she was talking about a, a, someone that she knows that she interacts with regularly, and was saying that uh, the person was like, why are you so nice, and why are you so, you know, caring and friendly, and this and, and, and Grandma's response was, it's only because of Jesus in me that I treat you that way. Like, look, what, what's happening there? I'm an evil, rebellious person that God has done a great work in. And so my question is, when we talk to our coworkers, when we talk to, like, is that the kind of picture we're painting? Or we're just painting the picture that I'm a good person that God's made better? There's a big difference. So we understand that we see God's imminent involvement most clearly when we see the fact that we rejected him and he, in such great love, came to rescue us. I like what Dr. Bruce Ware said, it was my theology professor in seminary, said this, the depth of his desire, it's God's desire, the depth of God's desire to be related anew to his rebellious creatures is as manifested above all in the cross truly beyond all human comprehension. And we see in John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see this eminence of God. Where do we see this eminence of God? We see it in the, His Son Jesus. And then as we see that crescendo into the cross, God's display of his imminent involvement in rescuing rebellious people that he chose knowing their sin. 
So once again now, let's think about the eminence of God and how does this impact humility and gentleness, patience, and eagerly maintaining unity. The first one is this, walk in a manner of humility and gentleness, eagerly maintaining unity because God is eminent in His creation. He was transcendent over, now He's eminent in. Let me help you apply this. Do you want to know why you can be humble? Because the great high majesty, the creator of the universe, the one not bound by space and time, the one whose train of his robe fills the temple, has humbled himself to the point of taking on flesh and even to the point of death on a cross so that he might restore you to relationship with himself. I want you to think about that for a second. On our best day, A day where it seems as though the whole thing honored God from our actions to our deepest thoughts. The reality is, is you still are flesh. You still came from flesh. But the transcendent God humbled himself by taking on flesh. Again, how's that for humility? How's that for encouraging and inspiring humility in us that, that this great God humbled himself to take on what we only know, and that is being bound by flesh. But we can also be humble because the great God showed us preference and gentleness, right? We talked about how humility is tied to this idea of giving preference, this idea of, of, of uh, showing others and believing others to be more significant than ourselves. We put them before ourselves. God does this very same thing with His Son Jesus in slaying His own Son so that you and I might be restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father. So you see His imminent involvement. That God counted us in a way that's more significant than Himself, than himself not in a way that puts us over him. We have no, we, that's not what I'm saying. We just got to talk about transcendent, but God has kind of significant that his son Jesus would come and die on the cross for us. As most of the time we lack gentleness, it's based upon our prideful assumption. Again, similar to the transcendent thing that we're sovereign over the situation, but, but we also tend to struggle with thinking that we're imminently involved in someone's life enough to bring about the change that we want to see brought about. So the second one, we talk about patience. I just started talking about patience a little bit. We're to walk in a manner of patience, eagerly maintaining the unity because God is imminent in His creation. You know, many times when, when it comes to people in the body, you and I want things done a certain way. We want people to act a certain way. We want them to respond a certain way and talk a certain way and get things done a certain way. Or maybe we genuinely want someone to overcome sin. Like you genuinely want that brother or sister to overcome sin. So whether this is just a preference in how you would like another person to live or it is indeed sin in that person's life that should be repented of. We're called to be patient. We're called to be patient. But what happens is we get impatient, though, right? We rush things. We become harsh and insensitive. 
But you know what? Listen. God is imminently involved in that person's life. God is imminently involved in that person's life. God is personally and deeply involved in that brother or sister's life. And here's the deal. Everyone look at me. Look at me. If God is at work in that person's life, do you know what that means? You can be patient. You can be patient. You can rest. You can be patient. Now I don't mean, like listen, if sin is like staring them in the face and they're about to jump off the cliff figuratively or literally into great destruction, rescue them. Like, I'm not talking about well, just, you know, just be impatiently, you know. I want that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking in general, most of the things that go on, we should be patient with. Now, I'm not talking about whether or not you ever confront the person. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the attitude in which you do it and the speed at which you do it and the humility and the patience at which you do it. If you believe God is imminently involved, then you won't, there's no need to rush in. But then you also go in going, ah, I can go in with patience and gentleness and humility because I know God is imminently involved in their life. I remember the pastor I worked with in Kentucky. Uh, many times there's things I thought, I don't, I don't really think we should do it this way. But the one thing I did believe about him and never crossed my mind was that God was imminently working in his life. And so you know when I wanted to change like something, I wanted him to change his mind on something? I just went to praying. I just went to praying. And you know what happened? A month, two months later, he changed his mind. Now, I didn't tell him that until after the, you know, after we left. But, uh, and apparently Rusty does that to me. So, you know, I'm like, I want to do this. And then I'm like, I changed my mind, huh? I wonder where that came from. <laughs> Daggone it, Rusty's been praying again. Get him to stop that. But, but here's the deal, though. I don't want you to take this and go, well, I can just be patient and go pray. Yes, be patient, go pray. But then eventually God's going to lead you to do something about it. I'm talking about the heart attitude of patience as you go, okay? As you go. Last one, walk in a manner of eagerness and maintaining unity because God is imminent in his creation. We should be eager. We should be fast. We should put great effort into maintaining unity. This is an active thing. You understand that, right? Unity is not something that just happens, Unity is something that is maintained actively. But if you think about God's imminence, again, God is personally and deeply involved in maintaining unity among his, among his people. That should be encouraging to us. Listen, where there's a group of people that call themselves Christians, that there is no unity, God is not among them. Because God is active in maintaining the unity of his people. I mean, there could be something else unifying them. If we are God's people, then we will be about the task of maintaining unity. But we understand that, that imminently involved with this is God. He is involved personally and deeply and fully in maintaining the unity of his body. God is transcendent and sovereign over the unity of the body, yet he is personally, deeply, and fully involved in everything. He is through all and in all. He is over it all. 
This is what Paul's talking about. He is through all and in all. It's this imminence thing that we've been talking about. And I want to remind us again that God's vision for unity is much bigger than ours. I want to inspire us to have a bigger vision for unity. God's vision, again, is that the voice of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength would in unison declare that our God is the King of the universe, that He alone is sovereign. Listen, when we walk in humility because He is transcendent, we are saying to the world that our God alone is high above all. You understand that? Like when we walk in humility because we understand who God is, we are proclaiming to the world that truth of God. When we walk patiently with each other because He is sovereign over the situation, we are saying to the world that our God is outside of creation, reigning and ruling far above it, and He is trustworthy in doing so. Because when we walk in humility, inspired by the humility of our humble Savior, we are saying to the world that God so loved the world that His Son humbled Himself to redeem His chosen people. And we are proclaiming that to the world. And when we walk patiently with each other, because our sovereign God is personally and deeply involved in the calling of that brother or sister to holiness and blamelessness, we are saying to the world that God chose His people, called His people, and is personally and fully involved in uniting all things in His Son, Jesus Christ. You understand? Like when we live in light of this truth of God, we proclaim these truths about God. You see, God's vision for unity is not just some people coming together on Sunday. It's not about just singing songs together or wearing the same clothes or voting Republican. God's vision is for His people to be united in Christ. All of us together abiding in all of the words of our Savior Jesus. And that's what I'm saying here. If you abide in the fact that God is transcendent, then this will encourage and bring about humility, gentleness, patience. If you abide in the fact that God is imminently involved in His creation, this will bring about humility, gentleness, and patience. And when we do this, when God does this in us, we are maintaining unity in the Spirit and by Spirit. We are proclaiming the same rightful truths about our God. And as this increases, right, as this visibly and invisibly increases, this unity in God, Jesus Christ slowly emerges as the point of it all. Until one day, it will be clear to all creation that Jesus was the whole point He was the point of creation. He was the point even in the fall. He was the point in redemption. And He is the point in the consummation. See, unity is not just, oh, let's go try to be unified. And it's not just us kind of doing some of the same things and having some of the same talk. Unity, God's vision for unity is that we would believe the same about God and then live the same, proclaiming the same about God, living unified 
in a way that can only be explained by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that we would stop settling for our frail visions and ideas of what unity looks like. You know, Father, I am thankful that in the midst of our church, we compared as we look around, we are very unified. But Father, I don't want us to look around. I want us to look up and see the unity of the Godhead, to see the unity that there is one Lord, one Spirit, one God over it all. And we see the unity that wherever Jesus went, He never went alone. He was always in the company of the Spirit and His Father. That they were always unified. That Jesus never did His own will, but did the will of the Father. And He did it in the strength of the Holy Spirit at work in His life. That we would look to that unity and go, that's what we're striving for. That we would always proclaim the same truths. That never once would one part of our body proclaim a falseness about you, Father, while another part of our body proclaiming a different falseness, Father. But we would, by your grace, encourage each other and remind each other of the truths of our great God. And so live in ever-increasing unity until we throw off the flesh and walk into your presence. Father, I pray that that would be our vision for unity. It would be your vision, Father. Father, for you are transcendent over it all, so we trust you, and we know that you are imminently involved, and so let us work with you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray.